Welcome to the second podcast in the Freshfield series, Managing Risk in Asia. My name is Nanette Dodu, and I'm a partner in the Freshfield's Beijing office, and I co-head the firm's competition practice in China. I will be moderating this session. Our Managing Risk in Asia series bring together experts across a range of subject areas to share forward-looking insights on key risk areas for 2021. This second podcast focuses on three key areas, data, cybersecurity, and people and conduct risks. To discuss these topics, I am joined by my partner, Richard Bird, who is based in Hong Kong and heads Freshfield's Asia Intellectual Property Commercial Practice. Kyung Kim, Senior Managing Director and APAC Head of Cybersecurity at FTI Consulting, and he is based in Seoul, Korea. And Stephanie Chu, a senior associate in our Hong Kong People and Reward Practice. My panelists have advised clients across Asia and globally, helping them navigate diverse risks and challenges. We will be discussing how legal and business leaders can prepare for, prioritize, and respond to these risks in the year ahead. We will conclude with some actionable takeaways, which we hope will help to steer your business in 2021. Let's move to our first topic, data. Richard, What are we expecting to see in 2021 when it comes to data developments in China? Uh, 2021 can see the most significant changes in data privacy regulation in China since the cybersecurity law came into effect, and that's now around three and a half years ago. So firstly, the civil code, uh, which as you know, came into effect on the 1st of January. That contains a whole chapter on personal data privacy and establishes foundational principles of data minimization, transparency of communication, purpose limitation, fair treatment. It also gives individuals directly enforceable rights for the first time under Chinese law. Um, so though the cybersecurity law uh, was a comprehensive piece of regulation with regards to the collection and processing of personal data online and through networks and systems, um, it was an administrative law and it was reliant for its enforcement upon action taken by administrative authorities. Um, so that's the first big change. Those directly enforceable individual rights are very likely to be enacted through a new personal information protection law, and that will be the second big change. Uh, a draft of that law was released in October of 2020, and that law will constitute the first omnibus regulation of data privacy in any scenario, so not situationally limited to information processed and collected electronically, um, as is the case with uh, the cybersecurity law. And to conclude this raft of changes, we've already seen the adoption of a new personal information security specification. That's a national standard uh, that came into effect on the 1st of October last year. And although that national standard is, strictly speaking, non-binding, importantly, it's always been viewed by privacy regulators in China as a very important set of rules for compliance with all of China's enforceable rules on data privacy. And therefore, effectively, it's always been viewed as being mandatory in practice. And essentially, what's happening then is that the personal information protection law will enact into national level law similar standards to those that are reflected in the updated personal information security specification. And therefore, that security specification will assume ever greater significance in the meantime as a citer for organizations looking to ramp up their standard of compliance uh, to meet the requirements of the new law. So uh, altogether, some very significant changes. Uh, One of the things I should mention is uh, a new proposal for a data security law uh, which came out a few months ago. Now, in the form which has been proposed, uh, that draft law is still very, very high level and is mainly principles-based. It sets out you know, several data security protection-related governance obligations uh, that will be applicable to any organization conducting really any form of data activity 
in China. Now, that draft is um, very, very high level, as I said. Uh, clearly, a lot of gaps remain to be filled in through implementing regulation. But given the breadth of the issues and activities addressed by the draft law, it's likely to herald a whole host of new rules and regulations and standards, similar to those uh, still emerging from the Cybersecurity Administration's Technical Committee 260, more than three years after enactment of the cybersecurity law. Can you tell us more about what to expect from the proposed personal information protection law? So uh, notably, uh, the personal information protection law, as was the specification before it, is very closely aligned with the GDPR in most respects. Uh, it will also have extraterritorial effect in very similar circumstances to the GDPR. In fact, it's probably most interesting to look at the ways in which the draft law differs from the GDPR. So looking at those individual rights, for example, the draft law does include a right of access to data, a right of rectification, a right of erasure, uh, even a right to object to automated decision-making, uh, which is not, in fact, typical of many laws that have been updated to reflect the requirements of the GDPR in other countries. But it does not include a right to object to profiling, for example, uh, or only proposes a very limited right uh, in the context of automated marketing and information delivery. It does also not include a right to data portability, uh, which in fact is one of the um, more commonly adopted GDPR rights elsewhere. Individuals will be given a right to request copies of their personal data, but without being able to require that that data is directly ported to another service provider. Um, so that's a meaningful difference from the, from the GDPR. One important change proposed in the personal information protection law is a slight move away from the standard of collection of personal data being entirely consent-based, uh, which is the case currently under the cybersecurity law. And the law is not proposing a major departure there, but uh, the proposal is to allow data to be processed when necessary to perform a contractual obligation, as well as allowing other exceptions on the basis of public health grounds for news reporting um, and the performance of statutory functions. So quite a significant change, but, but nothing close to the more general right to process personal data on the basis of legitimate interest, um, as is the case under the under the GDPR, but previously Chinese privacy law has been entirely consent-based. One other major way in which the law departs from the GDPR is in its treatment of cross-border data transfers, uh, and this has been a thorny issue ever since the cybersecurity law was brought into effect in 2017. And in that respect, um, although it's uh, significantly different in its approach from the GDPR, it actually in some ways pulls us back closer to the GDPR when compared to previous proposals to implement the data localization measures under the cybersecurity law, none of which were, in fact, ever brought into effect. But those proposals were for a general requirement to undertake a security assessment and to obtain approval from the provincial branch uh, of the Cybersecurity Administration before any personal data could be transferred out of China. Now, under the draft new law, that general requirement for approval will only apply to operators of critical information infrastructure and also to other organizations who collect personal data above a certain threshold level uh, that will be announced later. But for all other organizations, they will be allowed to export data out of China on the basis of fairly similar lines to those in effect under the GDPR, namely either obtaining certification uh, to make cross-border data transfers similar to the EU approach of binding corporate rules or by entering into a contract with the recipient of the transfer. And what are you seeing in the rest of the region, Richard? So the overarching trend is one of a steady flowdown of GDPR-style provisions into domestic privacy laws really across the whole Asia region, uh, most notably in India, uh, which is really now the last major world economy not to have any established regime for data protection. The draft Indian Personal Data Protection Bill was first proposed in 2018. It was tabled to Parliament the following year. Uh, but since then, it's been in committee, I think, now for around 18 months. 
But the expectation is that that bill will be put forward to both Houses of Parliament at some point during 2021. That's the expectation, at least. And what's really interesting, I think, about the Indian Personal Data Protection Bill is a degree to which it does adopt elements of the GDPR, but then puts a sort of unique India spin on top of those provisions, and also indeed adopts some of the data sovereignty and data security-focused approach of Chinese law. So again, we will have the adoption of a right of erasure and a right of data portability, but not notably a right to object to profiling or automated decision-making. There'll be a mandatory notification regime as well. And then some interesting nuances in the creation of a new category of a significant data controller or data fiduciary in the language of the bill. And those entities will be subject to additional and stricter personal data protection obligations. And there'll also be a a whole separate set of rules that will only be applicable to social media organisations. And when it comes to cross-border data transfer, the Indian bill falls somewhere between the GDPR and the Chinese approach. And then just to round up what we're seeing in the rest of Asia, the Singaporean parliament passed an amendment to the Data Protection Act in Singapore late in 2020. That's also expected to be brought into effect at some point this year. That amendment will similarly introduce a mandatory breach notification for the first time in Singapore, joining therefore most other countries now in Asia in having a mandatory data breach notification obligation, recently joined in fact by um, Japan in an amendment to the Personal Information Protection Act in, in Japan, although that um, new requirement won't come into effect for another two years, um, and also a proposal for, uh, for the same in Hong Kong. In other respects, the Singapore amendment relaxes requirements around deemed consent on the basis of contractual necessity and also introduces exceptions to the consent regime by notification non-objection on a change of purpose, for example, and also introduce a new right of data portability. We may also see other reforms to the Personal Data Protection Ordinance in Hong Kong. Um, so certain limited reforms were proposed in the early part of 2020. Those are still being considered by the LegCo Panel on Constitutional Affairs. Those reforms are really mainly intended to plug gaps in relation to data retention and the regulation of data processes. Um, but they will also address what's probably the most curious feature of the personal data protection regime in Hong Kong, namely that the Personal Data Protection Commissioner does not have direct fining powers for a data breach. It can only fine companies that refuse to comply with a, with a rectification order. Um, but the amendment does propose to give the Commissioner those powers. And if we're very, very lucky, we may also get to see the new data protection law in Indonesia, being much talked about for many years now. A draft of that law was apparently discussed by a committee of the Indonesian Parliament late in 2020, but it's yet to see the light of day. But I think it is expected that that proposal will materialise at some point in the early part of this year. Thanks, Richard. I would like to turn to Kyung now to understand more about cybersecurity risks and what businesses can do to prepare. COVID-19 literally forced us to work from home in 2020, right, in effort to combat the uh, pandemic. It took us by the storm and we weren't really ready for this. According to the FBI, they saw 400% increase in cyber-related data breach in 2020. Uh, Our IT department across the globe had to uh, face significant stress to support high operational demand and to support and provide technical support for their staff members and clients, right? Many organizations weren't ready to deal with this type of issues and it made us to utilize unauthorized home equipment which lacked network security, right? Our adversary knew this trend and took advantage of this ideal situation. As I mentioned before, we saw 400% increase which cost us hundreds of billion dollars uh, in the region. 
On average, data breach in 2020 cost us approximately $3.9 million, according to IBM, right? And we saw increase in PC scam, ransomware, DDoS attack, and the uh, insider threat attacks, right? We just began talking about getting vaccines soon, but unfortunately, I believe uh, much of 2021 will be similar to last year. Working from home is not going away anytime soon. However, 2021 shaped us and forced us to learn and adapt to better protect our network and sensitive data. It forced us to better deal with uh, situations like this in 2021, and we are in a better position to combat the adversaries. We know what to expect in 2021, and we have evolved for the better to deal with crises like this, and we are now more vigilant than ever to look for anomalies, and we are more educated on what to do and how to better respond in the event of data breach. So how are tech infrastructure or human controls weakened by the extended working from home, and what can companies do to build up their defenses? That's a great question. Our network infrastructure is more prone to attack since we have uh, been working uh, from home, right? As I mentioned before, we were operating with unauthorized and unpatched home equipment, which are more vulnerable vulnerable to attacks. This uh, unauthorized personal devices created additional access points for adversaries to exploit. As we know, more access points equal to more vulnerabilities. To build defenses, I want to say one of the very first things we need to do is update and add policies regarding bringing your own device. We need to tell them what's allowed, what's not allowed, right? We then need to focus on having a plan. Since the data breach will take place, uh, it's not about what if, it's about when. There are approximately 4,000 ransomware attacks per day, so it's, not, so it's going to happen, right? Having a incident response plan will make day and night difference. Also, I would like to share some uh, quick tips to better protect ourselves uh, while working from home. For example, we can strengthen our Wi-Fi router password at home, right? This is something we can do ourselves very easily to add extra defense layer. Use passphrase, make it complex, don't make it easy for our adversary to uh, crack our passwords. We can also use MFA, multi-factor authentication, and you can use uh, VPN, right? Uh, Virtual private network when you're logging in and accessing your network and email. Also, avoid sending sensitive information when you're home. I know this is uh, difficult and there is uh, going to be a time when you have to send uh, sensitive data. We understand that. So again, we can take extra steps to protect ourselves. You can use a secure email solution. For example, uh, our company uh, uh, and many other companies, they use solutions like uh, Voltage and Barracuda. And if you are a small to medium-sized company, you don't have uh, email secure solutions, uh, you can still protect yourself. For example, when you send files or data sensitive, you can send via zip files with a password, right? This is something easy, fast, and free. So just uh, add extra layer to secure yourself, right? 
and most attacks come via phishing email. I want to say approximately 70%. So providing proper training for our employees on what to look for is very crucial. We are the weakest link when it comes to defense layers. So take the weakest link out of the equation by providing proper training and combination of right defense tools and training will make your network much more secure. Young, I'd like to pick up on those points you've made, particularly from the perspective of companies trying to create and implement policies. What sort of advice would you give companies to, in terms of creating both effective and defendable policies vis-a-vis regulatory bodies in the instance of a breach? Every organization need to ask themselves this question to better uh, defend themselves and to understand their vulnerabilities. I first recommend that they need to identify their crown jewels, right? You need to know what you need to protect. If you don't know what to protect, you don't know, right? Then conduct a some sort of a vulnerability assessment to get the baseline. You can then compare your network system against the regulatory framework requirements to improve your vulnerabilities. We have multiple regulatory agencies in the region in Asia. For example, in Singapore, they have a PDPC. In Korea, they have a KISA. And Hong Kong, they have a similar name as Singapore. They have a PCPD or PDPO. These regulatory agencies have very robust regulation uh, protocols when it comes to data and network protection, right? This will give you a very good starting point and framework you need to know and understand before you implement your policies. So when you do compare your baseline against these authorities, it will give you a better idea on your vulnerabilities and your strength on your network. You can then work around the uh, regulatory framework to build your system up to their standards and requirements, right? And this will give you then uh, a both effective and defendable system in case of, of breach. And also look for best practice in a similar industry as you are in. Typically, these organizations like these uh, will have both effective and defendable mechanism in place since they are prime target for adversaries, right? They're constantly being targeted, constantly being attacked. So they deal with regulatory bodies and typically in line with regulations and have best practice policy in place. And this can be good starting point and can be very helpful in implementing your policies as you consult with your C-suite levels and IT and general counsel team members. Thanks, Kyung. I'd like to turn to you next, Stephanie, and begin by asking you, how do you think COVID has changed conduct risks? Thanks, Nanette. I think that the demands on employees to perform, whether it's the you know the setting of aggressive targets by a company to make up for lost time during COVID, or even the threat of losing their jobs, can translate into significant new pressures on employees. And these may lead to uncharacteristic behaviors, and in the most extreme cases, even lead to enhanced risk-taking or fraud. And I think it's a drastically different environment that we now work in. The controls, which previously worked in an office-based environment, where you had lots of face-to-face interaction and supervision was a part of daily life, are probably less appropriate now and less effective when translated into a home-based or socially distanced work environment. 
And I think in particular, many employers are, understandably, diverting resources away from things like legal and compliance and into revenue generation work streams, which means that risk and misconduct is even more likely to go undetected. So when you marry all of those things together, you know, the pressure to deliver targets, less in-person oversight, a system of control, which may not be fit for purpose, what you get is really a perfect storm. And I think it's clear that different types of crimes have emerged since COVID-19, taking advantage of the fact that companies are under lockdown or are busy meeting operational challenges. The Financial Action Task Force actually published a paper on this not too long ago, outlining the different types of crime which have become more prevalent during the lockdown. And as you can imagine, this included things like fraud, cyber uh, security attacks, theft, misappropriation, bribery, corruption, and property crime. I think the good news is that there are different ways a company may look to strengthen and update their controls and supervision in light of these risks. And some of these can be adopted as an immediate response while others will take more time to embed and to implement. But I think out of everything, promoting a speak-up culture, which is an environment where people are able and willing to raise concerns if they suspect or experience misconduct, is probably the most important thing. I'd like to pick up on your point about the speak-up culture. And in particular, in the context of COVID, how has this been impacted? And do you think that working from home remotely changes how likely employees will speak up about issues. We recently carried out a survey looking at, amongst other things, whether or not whistleblowing had been impacted by COVID-19. We surveyed over 2,500 respondents over 13 industries in the UK, US, France, Germany, and Hong Kong. And the response to that question was actually pretty inconclusive. So I think almost half of the respondents thought COVID-19 had not had any impact on instances of whistleblowing. But then roughly 25% of respondents thought that it had decreased whistleblowing, while 25% thought that uh, whistleblowing had increased. I think the divergent views probably means it's too early to tell. One camp of thinking is that there's probably more to blow the whistle about because there are more issues coming to the surface, although probably different types of issues are coming to light. For example, we may see more complaints about health and safety issues in the workplace. And there are others who argue that the social distancing probably empowers people to raise issues because psychologically there's a safe distance away from the office and they feel safer not raising these issues when they're next to the person who they may be making a complaint about. But I think that kind of argument equally cuts both ways. If people are working remotely, chances are it's less easy to spot issues when you're engaging less with people. And perhaps the connection people feel with the office and their level of engagement is also reduced. They're perhaps less plugged in, which means they're less likely to speak up about issues. And I think, sadly, the reality is that many people are feeling extremely vulnerable. They may feel more at risk with the financial fallout and therefore less likely to want to be seen to be causing issues or ripples in the workplace. That's really interesting. I'm assuming so in the case where there's been um, some whistleblowing and there needs to be an investigation, and you and I, Stephanie, and your team, we work quite closely together on antitrust internal reviews and investigations uh, ranging from document reviews, email searches, actually also interviewing employees. And the issues we've investigated have, have varied over, over the past, um, including this year in particular. 
If an employer needs to conduct an investigation during lockdown, how should an employer approach this? And what are some of the practical difficulties, you know, you and I and your team, we've had to uh, address and, and, and to discuss? I think that conducting an investigation when employees are working remotely poses lots of practical challenges, especially when it comes to collecting evidence. And it's particularly important to have a game plan when it comes to this. So I think the questions really to ask are, what evidence do you need to collect? Where are these likely to be stored? Is it possible to have remote access to this information? And if so, what are the limitations? And do your policies actually allow you to have remote access to these without the consent of the employees? In the most serious of cases, employers will often want to seize devices without advance warning in order to avoid deletion or destruction of the evidence. But that element of surprise is clearly going to be much harder to achieve in the circumstances where somebody is not physically present in the office, so you can't rock up to their desk and saying, you know, please hand me your computer or your phone. And I think if the employer does wish to implement some sort of dawn raid arrangement, you know, thinking about how you can implement this when people are working from home is going to be very important. And I think care has to be taken to make sure that the employee's rights are not violated or breached. And I think where so many countries remain in lockdown or going back into lockdown, the logistics of collecting a device from an employee's home is also an issue. Because who do you send to pick up the device? And what do the rules on lockdown say about this? Do they allow for you to, to organize, for example, a courier to pick something up? So because of these logistical challenges, I think that it may be often that the only materials that can be used or collected are those that are held remotely. So data that's been stored in the cloud or on a server. And so it would be important then to identify as soon as possible which materials will be required and then to check in with IT department as to how these materials can be accessed and if it's possible to cover any additional data that's on work devices. So for example, if employees use WhatsApp or WeChat to, to communicate about work, is it possible to get these data um, remotely? I think chances are there will be limitations as to how much you are able to collect. And the, the other question, I guess, is what happens if you need to collect hard copy documents? If hard copy documents are, for example, held at the homes of the employees or in a remote location, then you may need to think about issuing document preservation notices if you're not able to collect these immediately. I think importantly, um, companies need to have sufficient leverage in their policies to obtain access to digital devices without the consent of the employees. So I think now is a good time for companies to review and update these policies to make sure it does have the necessary powers to obtain data when employees are not in, uh, physically in the office. So for instance, it might be beneficial to update device policies to require the cooperation of employees to provide data that's stored on a device that cannot be remotely accessed. I'd like to end with some key takeaways from Stephanie, Richard and Kyung on the risks we've discussed as we look ahead to 2021. Let me turn to you first, Stephanie. In light of the people and conduct risks, what can employers do to better prepare themselves for 2021? Thanks, Nanette. I think that, as I've said previously, the most important aspect of any kind of risk and compliance program is really the speak up culture. And since the jury is still out on the impact of COVID on employees speaking up, 
I think companies should keep a close eye on the data flowing from their whistleblowing arrangements and looking at trends in whistleblowing reports. So, are companies getting more reports or less reports? Are there drops in particular business areas or jurisdictions? I think these trends will indicate a potential compliance issue, which needs to be addressed, or that there may be a change in attitude. Which may signal the need for a refresh of the、uh, whistleblowing arrangements, or a renewed emphasis on the importance of speaking up, or even additional training or messaging from senior management. So, identifying the changes and understanding the possible causes of those changes will be important in shaping a company's response. Richard, on data, what are we expecting to see in 2021, and how can businesses prepare? Uh, key takeaway in thirty seconds or less. I think that's the ever increasing need to factor Asia into any global privacy compliance program. Countries across Asia are genuinely very serious about achieving high standards of compliance.、Uh, the legal requirements are strict.、Uh, while those requirements increasingly are aligned with the GDPR in many places,、uh, key differences do still exist, and that places stress on the need for businesses to keep across these very rapid developments、uh, in all of the Asian jurisdictions in which they operate. Kyung, are there practical steps that businesses can take to lessen the risk of a cyber attack? Yes.、Um, key takeaway is you need to understand your threat landscape, right? You need to understand your who you are dealing with, who are the threat actors, right? If they have typical criminal、uh, cyber actors, and they have state-sponsored cyber actors, you know, novice hackers, a、uh, profession hackers. Who are you dealing with, right? Know know your、uh, threat actors, right? And as I mentioned before, the cyber attack is going to happen.、Uh, it's when, not if, right? So therefore, you need to have a proper instant response plan. So uh, uh, they, you need to have a plan in order to、uh, execute and properly respond, right? And with that said, as I mentioned earlier,、uh, take the weakest link out of the equation. Train your employees and the,、uh, teach them to be lookout on anomalies, and help them by providing right tools to respond in the event of an emergency.、Uh, recently, I recorded another podcast as part of FTI Cybersecurity Series, where I discussed the、uh, cybersecurity landscape across APEC region. This is available on all major podcast outlets.、Uh, if anyone would like to check it out, thank you for having me. Thank you, Stephanie, Richard, and Kyung, for sharing your insights and recommendations for how businesses can prepare for people, data, and cybersecurity risks in 2021. We are very keen to hear your views on managing risks and preparing for business success in 2021. We hope that you will continue to tune in for future podcasts in this Managing Risk series.